Hello, Feral family. This is Christina. We are doing a early podcast release. Um, we're planning on releasing the entire season in May. But given the general health situation in uh, the United States and around the world, we thought it would be a great idea to uh, reach out to one of our feral family members and author, Aton Edwards. Aton wrote uh, Preparedness Now, which is part of our self-reliance series, and it is an emergency survival guide and how to plan it. Aton is the executive director of the 30-year-old organization, the International Preparedness Network. He's also been featured on MSNBC, The Today Show, uh, countless, countless radio shows. He is an expert in preparing yourself for disasters, both big and small. He's also working on um, a new book that'll be released in fall of 2020 called Afro Prep Now, which is a very important book that's going to help the uh, communities of color with specific and generalized instructions on how to really prepare themselves for the what's, what our future looks like. So thank you, Aton, for spending some time with me this morning. And we are talking, it's very important to note, on Saturday morning, March 14th, 2020, in the changeable situation with the uh, new virus, that this information is both pertinent to the current situation and for future planning, but note that the situation is very changeable. With that being said, welcome, Anton. Well, thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. I'm happy to be uh, doing this with the Feral House family. This is a wonderful thing. Um, I, it's a we, it's timely. Um, you know, we're in a situation now where we're no longer part of a drill. That this is an actual live exercise, um, and uh, I think that uh, it's time that we kind of like separate the the facts from the fiction with all of the uh, craziness that's going on in the country now and we have a lot of people just you know running to and fro doing all kinds of really weird things in terms of what they think they need to do for uh, preparing you know themselves and preparing their homes for this situation and I think that it's time for us to kind of take some of the practical knowledge and the wisdom that we have and apply it. And so I'm glad that you decided to do this so we can get that done. I, thank you. And thanks again for spending um, a time with us to help educate everyone. So my first question to you is, um, what we know about the coronavirus, as well as the disease caused by the coronavirus is called COVID-19. Can you tell us what you know about what the disease is, how it manifests and how it spreads? Okay, so um, I'll start with that uh, what I do know about it in terms of its origins, uh, because there's a lot of bad information floating around about that, too, um, in terms of people speculating as if it's a bioweapon and all this kinds of other stuff. Um, it seems that it's not. Um, that some of the top scientists that have had an opportunity to kind of analyze it really do believe at this point, like with almost like 100% certainty that it did originate from a bat um, and that it probably that uh, the Wuhan wet market is probably the epicenter. Someone who butchered this bat um, probably came in contact with the bat's blood, the bat's urine, the bat's feces, and basically went from hand to mouth or hand to eye and then transferred it onto themselves. So we know that it's one of uh, the most uh, the, absolutely the most communicable uh, coronaviruses that have come along in a long time. It's, it's crazy. In fact, I just read a report from the National Institute of Health in Princeton University that speaks about just not how, not just how uh, um, infectious it is, but also how hardy it is, how robust it is in terms of how long it can live on surfaces. Um, the fact that uh, some Chinese scientists have identified that it, it's actually airborne. So uh, effectively what happens is, is that when someone sneezes, someone coughs, and then there's mist, this mist of uh, water and sputum and little micro droplets, the aerosol mist that is produced by a sneeze or a cough, that the virus is going to hang in the air for, for much longer periods of time than I suspected even uh, like two or three weeks ago. I mean, we know that this exists in that case 
uh, for any type of virus or any kind of a communicable disease. But and, and one of the things that I kind of assumed at first, because there's a there's a, a dynamic, the, the of uh, let's say the virus size and its weight relative to air currents and temperature and all that as to how long it'll stay in the air. And this particular coronavirus, as far as coronaviruses go, it's large. Um, it's measured in nanometers, not in microns like, um, uh, like other microorganisms are. So a nanometer is basically one billionth of a meter, and a micron is one twenty-five thousandth uh, of uh, an inch. So what we're talking about is this is um, it's a big virus. It's about 120 nanometers, um, or to 160, and it'll but it'll float in the air for long periods of time. It it attaches to these micro droplets as aerosol at the, these little droplets of air that are always there, and it'll stay in the air for hours. So conceivably, if you went to a space now, and, and let me just roll back for a second because even before we started the podcast, we we. We had a brief conversation about um, some of the foolishness that's actually happening in terms of the way people are, you know, rolling in the supermarkets in mass, huge crowds in supermarkets standing on lines. So conceivably, if we have a virus that has this kind of hang time in the air and you're in a space with a lot of people, uh, that the chances are increased significantly uh, because you know we don't know how many people are infected with the virus, and if, but if you're in a space with a lot of people, and somebody might have it in that space, and, and conceivably that one person can spread it just by one cough or one sneeze. Right, and I'd so like we to, have. Oh, and I'd like ahead, to ahead. just um, kind of join in a little bit to say, and this is one of the the um, misunderstandings that. Um, is just making me personally crazy is that not everybody exposed to the virus will get it will you will get it into their system and then also even if it's in your system you may not actually get the disease which is the COVID-19 so Eitan tell us a little bit what you know um, of what are the main symptoms and how does the disease actually progress well from the first two of the first 14 days, uh, the first thing that you're probably going to get is a sore throat, right? And, um, and then you're going to get a, a mild cough and fever, not in this particular order, but it seems that what people start to, to feel almost, uh, you know, in all the cases that we've seen is that people get this sore throat and then this mild cough, and then you get a fever, a very high fever. Now, the, the way that the virus works is that it seems like that um, is there's two ways that you can get it. It's, there's one way where you get it through the nasal passages and upper bronchial tract where the virus embeds itself there and it replicates itself there. Generally speaking, if that happens, uh, you will probably get milder symptoms in someone who basically inhales the live virus and it embeds, it embeds, it, it embeds itself in your lung, deep in your lung. Because if it starts replicating itself there, then the symptoms that you're going to suffer through are more severe than the person who basically the virus stops in the nose of the bronchial passages. Um, so fever, sore throat, um, also diarrhea um, that people get uh, when they we get this. Not severe diarrhea. It's not like when you get dysentery or something, but you will get diarrhea. And then if um, the virus continues and you would, can develop pneumonia, um, and um, and it can become severe. If it becomes severe, then you can wind up, uh, your body can wind up in a state called sepsis, and you can start to have organs shut down. But that's only going to happen to people who um, have compromised immune systems. So essentially, uh, people are going to get uh, the sore throat, the fever, um, and they're going to get the the the. Uh, you know, they can also develop pneumonia if it if it gets really bad, diarrhea. And um, but the first thing that you have to look out for is the sore throat or that light cough, kind of wet kind of a cough that you develop. Um, but just like you said, I mean, everybody's not going to develop severe symptoms. I would say that the majority of the people who get this is going to be kind of like a mild to, uh, let's say, a bad cold. And, um, and then there's going to be that small minority who get the worst of it, which is the kind of stuff where you have to be hospitalized. 
Uh, most of the people that get it, they can basically stay indoors and, and stay away from emergency rooms and treat it at home um, outside of getting tested to see if, you know, uh, if they have it. Which, Christina, I got to tell you, I'm not very confident in the United States anyway uh, because of the, the nation's completely inept response in uh, preparing itself for this. I have to agree so, with you. I, this is it, it, what we've seen so far from the federal government in the United States has been abysmal. I will give credit to some local municipality mayors and some governors who are have a better understanding of what's happening and are taking good action. And this is a point I want to bring up um, that people in general in the Americas especially, have become so self-centered and narcissistic. And I've seen commentary out in the, uh, on radio and online about people saying, oh, it's just a cold. You, people survive it. You can get sick. But one of the things that I think that people are forgetting is that if you have that sore throat or that sneezing, or you are transmitting the potentiality of getting other people very sick, people who have compromised immune systems, people who are elderly and more susceptible to the severe manifestation of the illness. So when we talk about the testing, what the testing can do is help us identify who is sick and transmitting the virus and who isn't sick. And that is a critical thing because without the without understanding what is happening and how the virus is spreading is that is why we need to take such extreme measures to assume that everybody has been exposed. So what do you see, Aton, as like the correct things that people in the uh, Americas and really worldwide should be doing in lieu of uh, the absence of federal leadership and testing? What should people themselves be doing right now? Um, It's a matter of like... The, one of the most effective ways to do it is, of course, this whole social distancing policy that we've adopted fairly recently. Um, again, if you, you, you can't get sick um, unless you're exposed to the contagion. And, and generally speaking, for the most part, the, the easiest way to get sick is to, to be in proximity to somebody who has the disease. And then, like the levels, the tiers get lower with uh, with the further away that you get from someone who has it. So someone who has it will sneeze, cough, and they'll spread it, and the, the virus will, will rest on a surface called fomites. And then there's another method of transmission. So you're touching surfaces, elevator buttons, um, uh, handrails on uh, uh, escalators. I mean, in fact, in preparedness now, I went into that uh, sequence, uh, chain of events of things that you need to stay away from. And, um, and people have to recognize that when they go into a public space that everything that they touch is, could be potentially contaminated with the virus because it can live a long time outside of the body. Initially, people thought at, the, at first they would stay, uh, a lot of the authorities were saying that it could live for like three days, but that's not the case. It depends on the, temp, you know, the temperature of the environment, like in an, in an apartment or someplace that's temperature controlled, it doesn't have a lot of sunlight. You can have a virus that can lay up on a surface for a week, nine days, 10 days. I've seen some figures over two to three weeks that the virus can stay alive, depending on how much of it is on the surface and depending on the type of surface that it is. Stainless steel, plastic, uh, anything glass, anything that's non-porous. So um, social distancing, being mindful of the surroundings that you're in. Uh, and then taking the precautionary things that you need to do in terms of providing barriers that present, uh, prevent the virus from like contaminating your clothing, your hair, uh, and the inhalation of it. And, you know, I'll tell you something, Christina, it's rough. Because it, I, I just, I, I was speaking to someone about this earlier this week, and then she was asking me kind of like the same thing. And I said, well, you can protect yourself 100%, but it just really depends upon uh, the level of the protocols that you want to embrace. If you want to embrace the protocols of like, let's say, a virologist who has to work in a, a biological uh, hazard like laboratory, a BL4 laboratory, a level four hazard, you would have to set up your home kind of like a laboratory. And when you, when you came home, you'd have to 
take off your shoes and pretty much remove all of your outer clothing before you walked in, you know, to one point, infect yourself. That's not going to happen with most people. So we have to kind of like find a happy medium in between all of that and figure out ways that we can kind of like eliminate most of the risk without uh, living like we're all in, a, I don't know, that movie Contagion or the, the one with Dustin Hoffman where we're walking around with hot suits. Right. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult. It just depends upon your level of commitment and level of discipline. So having the masks, right, because that was the big thing at first. Everybody's walking around, especially in New York or even here in Toronto. Um, the people are walking around with masks outdoors, not in proximity to anybody now, mind you. Nobody's there. Um, but they're still wearing the masks. And, you know, I think that's kind of like part of the mania. I think that that's kind of like gives people a sense of security. I have a mask on. I'm not going to inhale it. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we just have to kind of like learn how to balance these things. I also see people wearing masks and not covering their hair, which is something that really drives me nuts. As a follically challenged person, uh, <laughs> I, don't have to worry about, I don't have to worry about this, okay? Because my Mr. Clean is... Basically, I can just wipe whatever falls on my head off. But for people who are not follically challenged, who have a head full of hair, if you walk into a public space and you're surrounded by people and your hair isn't covered, you have to recognize that your hair is like a magnet for not just lint and dust, and, but everything else that's in the air, including virus. So it's very, very simple to walk into an environment that may be contaminated, might be some virus hanging in the air. You walk past it and it basically attaches to your hair. You scratch your head, you touch your eyes, you touch your nose, or you touch your mouth, and you basically just transmitted the virus into your body. Also, the clothing that you wear. Um, you know, you go into a public space, it's probably best to throw on like a windbreak or something that is a barrier between the clothing that you touch and the clothing that's outdoor clothing, and then there's the clothing that's indoor clothing. And your coat is a barrier, protection between you and things that you come into contact with on the outside. That is, um, you know, benches, if you sit down on a bench, uh, if the coat is long enough, it'll, it'll cover your bottom and it'll provide a barrier between you and your clothing, uh, you, the clothing that, you know, your inner clothing, your pants and everything else. When you get, into, when you get home, you have to take off that coat and you have to segregate it from the other clothes because the coat could be potentially contaminated with virus. And so it's just like all these little things that, that matter a lot. Having gloves when you uh, – disposable gloves, the nitrile gloves that you can wear if you have to kind of like uh, move around a lot outside. Um, like when you purchase groceries at the grocery store, making sure that before you put them in the freezer or in the uh, refrigerator that you rinse them off, if the, like the non-perishable food items and cans and things like that. You've got to rinse these things off because there are going to be people in the supermarket that are touching a lot of the stuff that you see. And, of course, the refrigeration provides a mode of keeping the virus alive even longer. So you could conceivably be walking through the meat section and someone who had coronavirus touching a package of chicken or a package of beef or fish or whatever it is. And then you basically take that package home, stick it in your refrigerator, and there's still live virus on the surface that will live longer because you're refrigerating it. So all of these things have to be taken into account so that you can kind of like uh, raise the odds of uh, you not getting infected. And I know it's kind of like exhausting, but it's really the only way that you can kind of like um, uh, make yourself safer. Sure. And, I, uh, I wanted to bring up a point is um, and this is something that um, one of those myths and kind of the falsehoods getting going around on the Internet a bit is people are saying, oh, it's a coronavirus. It's the same kind of thing as a common cold. And I want to point out something to anybody listening, in case you don't know, is that we have human beings, as well as our pets and other mammals, have an immune system. And our immune system, essentially, if you think about it, is a series of little levers that get turned on and off. And it's your body's internal way of dealing with invaders. Now, once you've been exposed or you 
get build antibodies and immune system through your mother, through your environment, from your exposure. You build up a tolerance to certain viruses. When you hear the word novel corona, that means it's brand new. And so the precautions that Eitan is telling you about are ones that would apply for preventing any type of viral transmission uh, from a, a common cold to an influenza virus. The difference, though, the difference here is that no one has built an immune system antibodies for this particular virus. So everyone essentially is jumping into the viral pool naked. Sure, as they do research, we're finding out some people have um, a natural immunity, but we don't know enough information. So all of the things that Aton is telling you that can help uh, protect you from getting the virus on your body and bring it into your house are all things that would apply to any type of preparation. And again, as he said, it's all about to what level of extreme you want to take it. So Eitan, I'm going to ask you another question about what do you think? You mentioned some of the absolute precautions, covering your hair, covering your hands if you're interacting in a public space. Um, now, what is your position on wearing face masks, and what are some of the things that folks can do if they are not isolating themselves and they have to go out in public, whether because their work um, does not allow them to work from home? They have to go and interact in the public, with the public. What should people be doing to protect themselves? Um, I think that they got to do whatever is, whatever they feel is necessary to do it. Like, I'll give you an example. I saw someone, in an, an Uber driver, who um, basically built a little cocoon for, I don't know if it was a male or female, for his or herself um, in the driver's compartment. So they basically took some plastic, draped it across the seat, duct taped it to the, <laughs> you know, to the, to the top of the car from to the bottom and sealed themselves in into the passenger area. I mean, the plastic and the duct tape extended all the way to the front of the car and to the front window. And, and uh, you know, people look at that. I saw it on the internet and people look at it and maybe laugh, but you know what? That provides that person with that little bit of an extra barrier that can make the difference between them from getting infected or not. So I think that people need to do what they think is necessary, whatever they need to do to protect themselves. Now, depending on the kind of work that you have, if you, if you work in a place where you're, in constant contact with a lot of people, people in the service industry and such, then you have to take those extra precautionary measures. And it really doesn't matter how you look. What matters is, is that you're safe. So in terms of, yeah, wearing the masks, of course, they have to be the N95 masks and not the, uh, the surgical masks that you see a lot of people wearing that really don't provide any protection. It's almost like putting a tissue over your face. The polypropylene shell but the triple shells that they have on the N95 masks uh, provide you with much more protection than that. Um, it's not to say that it's absolute because, you know, people ask me a lot, if I wear the mask, am I protected from the virus? And I say you have some degree of protection with the mask. But if somebody sneezed in your face and you had one of those masks on, that the chances are that there would be some virus that would actually get through if they were in very in close proximity. Right. So having the masks... Um, having barriers uh, between, you know, the eyes, wearing glasses. I tell people, you know what, you might look like Buddy Holly or something, but if you can find just a pair of glasses that you can put on that if you don't need them, but that have no medicine and, you know, they're not prescription lenses, just to get out of the habit of touching your eyes. Anything that can prevent you from touching your eyes and touching your mouth, I think it's really important to kind of like cycle into uh, – your uh, basic, uh, pro like let's say, uh, barriers. Yeah, from, that's a great uh, that's a great tip of, of finding a pair of like non non prescription glasses or sunglasses or something to do a physical barrier. Um, now, as many of the Farrell family know, that um, aside from my work here. Is I'm also the master food uh, preserver for was in Wisconsin, and we talk a lot in food safety about barrier technologies. And so, as Aton said, barrier technologies 
do not, they don't 100% block out. What the idea of a barrier technology, and I always say it when I'm teaching, is it's essentially like the old Batman TV show, is that you're you're essentially throwing up roadblocks. You're throwing a chair at the pathogens. You're shutting the door. You're making it more difficult for those pathogens, for that virus, to come into your body and to come into your environment. And so always think about that, what you can do to slow down the actual pathogen. Um, I'm going to shift gears just a, a little bit, Aton, and let's talk about something that you and I were talking about a little earlier before we started recording, which is our social responsibility. And what does this mean for our larger communities? And what should we be thinking about as a community to help not just ourselves, but help our neighbors and friends? So first of all, um, when we talk about social isolation, what does that mean for folks who are immune compromised or at greater risk of getting the virus? Yeah, that's a, a very important point. Uh, we, we, I don't know where, you know, it kind of like, it, it really peeves me to even think about this because I'm having watched a lot of the images over the course of the past week of people hoarding food and toilet paper and, and the kind of behavior that we see in the supermarkets that kind of reminds me of the Black Friday stuff where people are kind of like storming the place for bargains. And, um, and kind of like there's a, there's a part of this that is, is very offensive to me because it seems like that uh, – I don't know that this this uh, embracing this individualistic perspective on this virus is going to make us safer. So let me hoard everything. I, you know, I'm not really even considering what's around me. It's all about me. And we're basically tackling this virus in the wrong way. If we think that individually we can shield ourselves from it, if we just buy enough shit, you know what I mean? It's not going to work like that. And we have to take in, into account our neighbors, our people who have compromised immune systems and the people who are ill, uh, people who are at, more, at higher risk. And we have to consider them just as much as we consider ourselves in the way that we combat this virus. And one of my things is, is the homeless. We have this enormous homeless population in the United States. We have, I've, I've heard Bernie Sanders speak about 500,000, but there's more than 500,000. There's probably a million or maybe even more than that. And, um, and we have these, you know, they make up these little cute, these little, uh, what do they call them now, rough sleepers. No, they're homeless people. And, and the fact of the matter is they're homeless human beings who have been, to a large degree, abandoned by the system. And in a crisis like this, we have to turn our attention not only to our homes and our own families, but to people who are also in need because you are only as safe as your neighbor. So if you have a homeless person who's living on the street in the proximity to where you live and that homeless person does not have the proper sanitation facilities, they can't go to a bathroom and wash their hands or take a shower. They can't clean their clothes. And then they wind up getting infected with the coronavirus. Here's the reality that they get infected they can't protect themselves and they are going to spread it and they're going to put it on surfaces. They're going to, if you can't, like I said, coronavirus also affects the GI. It's also in the GI. So basically when they have to defecate in the streets, as a lot of people have to do, they don't have the mountains of toilet paper that people have been buying to clean themselves afterwards, nor do they have the water and the soap to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. So what does that mean? That means that everywhere that they go, they're going to be leaving a little bit of that virus everywhere that they go. So we cannot have a homeless population. We cannot have people in need that surround us and think that because we are okay, that they are they are going to be okay or we're going to be protected too. So we have to kind of like get a sensibility and recognize and look for the people and reach out to people, people that we know are having problems, people that we know are elders who can't do for themselves and stop hoarding the food for the people who need it the most and make sure that our efforts to protect ourselves are more balanced. And if we're not doing this holistically, we're not going to deal with this at all. This is going to collapse 
quickly. There's just no way that the behavior that we're on track with now is going to help us to become more safe. And in actuality, what it does is it creates more problems in the long run. Yes, this, so the I center will important. not hold. The center will not hold. No, the hold. center will not hold. Yeah, you know, Yeats was right. And the thing is, is that we, we have to recognize that it's our responsibility. And um, I just think that that's the most important thing. I've always told people you're only as safe as your next door neighbor. So I, th- I just told some, some folks this morning, if you have the ability to buy a month's worth of food or two months worth of food at a time, then you also have the ability to buy some extra stuff that you can take to a homeless person on the city streets that you might know, somebody that you've passed for most of the time and ignored their plight. But now is not the time to ignore their plight. Now's the time to get some supplies and materials for them, some soap, some water in a, a, in a, in a jug so that they can wash their hands, some food. If you have some clothing to give it to them, some clean clothing, if there's a way for you to, to offer to have them clean their clothes in a laundry, do something that is going to help the most disadvantaged people in your community. Because by doing that, you're going to help to contain the virus. And that's the way that we, we're going to have to do. We cannot look towards the government. You know, I think that one of the things about preparedness now that even, you know, our dearly departed uh, brother Adam uh, wanted and, and also Jody was to have a guide for people. Uh, that recognize that the government is basically about the government. It's about continuity of government and nothing else. They don't really care about people. They care about the continuity of the, their entities, their military, the financial entities, and everything else. So they're going to do the basic minimum to deal with what they have to deal with. That's why you just found that they find uh, the Fed finds $1.5 trillion to throw at the economy but not that same $1.5 trillion to throw at these students who student debt or to throw in the healthcare system. Right. Absolutely. And that's why, so I'd like to bring it back to like our feral family, um, who I think all of us know, um, are pretty well aware that your country does not love you. And we make the joke and we started always talking about the feral family because, you know, we have shared affinities. We have shared interests, all of us, our writers, our authors, our readers, our fans. And so I want to make that a true and real thing as part of the feral family. I want folks listening today to identify a neighbor, um, an, an elder in their community that maybe they have a relationship with, um, or someone they know who might be immune compromised or for some reason not able to maybe prepare as well as they themselves can. Like you said, Eitan, if you're able to buy enough supplies for a month, you can share that wealth. Pick someone, pick someone in your community and reach out to help them. Even at the minimalist, minimalist with the social isolation, you can chat with people, you can call people and check on them. Keep the networks alive. Let me also say the homeless situation is at a critical point. If you yourself don't know a homeless person or recognize them from your neighborhood, there are many volunteer and nonprofit groups that are doing direct outreach to homeless populations, providing them with the materials that, as Aton mentioned, clean water, clean clothes, um, medical supplies, and um, emergency health care. Find those organizations, reach out to them, ask what they need, get it to them. Again, we need to protect ourselves as a family, as a community. So in saying that, our next thing to talk about is what exactly are things that we should be concerned about in preparing to say if the country shuts down for the next four months or a few, four weeks, one month, maybe a few more months. Um, Earlier, you and I were talking about having um, pets. Um, We often forget our pets in times of crisis. How much food or medicine should we be stocking up on for our pets, if at all? Oh, no, we have to, we have to stock up for our pets because if the line of delivery, if the, you know, like everything that we have now is a right-on-time delivery. So when um, that's why the, the barcodes are on the foods. And so when you have a certain amount of uh, items in a supermarket and every time it's scanned, it's basically taking account of whatever item it is. When it runs out, then it's basically automatically um, the automatic alert to the distributor. Now, the problem with this kind of a situation is 
is that the, the delivery line can be disrupted because of uh, because of the lack, let's say, if this gets really bad, then a lot of the uh, people in the trucking industry and the transportation industries might be out and down for the count, and deliveries may lag. And so we have to make sure that our pets and, of course, our families are taken care of. So, yeah, you got to stock up on food for your pet. You also, i, I got to tell you this, too, since you're bringing up the pets, Christina, um, we also have to be mindful of our pets contracting this illness. I don't think that people have heard this very much, but dogs and even the cats, it can show up in lesser amounts in, uh, in terms of the viral load. But this virus can also, the dogs and cats can actually get it. And if you have someone who's infected with it, that a dog or an animal can pick it up. So what you don't want to do, you want to make sure that because they live on the floor and uh, for the most part, right, that's their domain. So it's really important at this point now for people to take this one precautionary measure. And when you're coming from outdoors to indoors, you've got to take those shoes off. Um, even if you have hardwood floors or <clears throat> linoleum or whatever the kind of floor that you have, it's a solid surface. It doesn't really make a difference because whatever we track in from the outside, it can actually harm our pets. And we have to be very, very careful about what we expose them to because ultimately, if they're exposed to something, that we're exposed to it as well. So yes, stock up on pet food, stock up on any supplies and materials that your pet would need. And, you know, and going back to the humans, make sure that you have all the medicine that you need, especially if you're dependent on particular medications, um, pain medication, things like that, because that's gonna fly off the shelf too, because 90% of the medicine that Americans use is manufactured in China. And the supply line of a lot of this medicine is being cut because the deliverables are being delayed. So what you're going to start to see is empty shelf syndrome. If this continues on for the next two months, you're going to go into Walmart. And you're going to see a lot of empty shelves because the production lines in China have shut down. And a lot of the product that we're used to being able to have our hands on anytime that we want it is not going to be available. So do that now. But don't do it in a mad rush. You can do it gradually. That's what, what, what makes me crazy is like just yesterday alone where you had all these different people shopping as if the apocalypse was going to happen the next day. And so they're not doing this in a, in a systematic way uh, of getting you know, certain things uh, that you need, the, the uh, non-perishable food items, stocking up on it and taking their time to do it. They're hoarding it. And by hoarding and the way that people are doing it, it takes it away from the people who need it the most. And um, so, you know, it's important for you to go and do this for your pets and, and to, to do this now. But you don't have to go out and buy like 10, 50 pound bags of kitty food or 50 pound bags of dog food um, in that way. It's not necessary. If you can, fine. If you see it on the shelf, fine. But generally speaking, you know, just start it now. And, you know, that's and, something, and that's something that if you uh, pick up Aton's book, Preparedness Now, um, definitely is something that's recommended, is that you should be prepared now for the eventuality of something happens. It could be a tornado in Nashville. It could be a pandemic. It could be just a blizzard if you're in the upper Midwest like I am. The idea of preparedness is not a reactionary concept. It is about preparing for uh, the unknown and keeping a month's supply of food and general supplies in your home is not extreme. And as Eitan just mentioned, you rotate it through and then you, you work on always keeping your supply a few weeks, a few months, uh, a month or so ahead of the just-in-time delivery curve. And that is not hoarding, that is preparing. And so if you haven't lived that type of lifestyle, if you haven't embraced that, again, start slow now, get the immediate triage list of supplies that you need with uh, medicines, both uh, prescription and over-the-counter, as a priority for yourself and for your pets. Get those first in the next few um, days to weeks. Start getting items that you know that you can't live without. And that does not mean uh, you know, a gross of ass wipe. Okay, people, let's use our brains here. Um, so, Aitan, let's let's talk a little bit about what some of the um, economic issues are for people. Um, a lot of what we think of is preparedness is about being financially prepared too. But what are some of the um, tips, ideas, and thoughts you can share with people who? Um, 
for all of the uh, fascistic reasons that wages are artificially kept low and that people uh, owe a tremendous amount of money, whether it's for their homes, for their credit cards, or for their student loans, how can people who are not financially secure and liquid at this time do, what can they do to help get through this? Well, I think that one of the things that you're going to have to do if you can't afford to do some of the things that we speak about, because there is this financial quotient involved in, in dealing with all this and buying gear and all these different materials and supplies that people are doing. And if you don't have the, uh, if you don't have the cash available to do stuff like this, then you're going to have to improvise. And I think that one of the things that you can do is to the best resource available is to using the internet. Uh, you can get books like preparedness now, and it's a wealth of materials online for you to improvise practically everything that you would need to buy. Um, and I think that you need to start to do that now because here's one of the things I want to really get to because I, excuse me, I get this a lot. I get this pretty much every day with people kind of assuming that I, I don't know if it's kind of, uh, if people have, well, people have a, let me put it to you this way. People have a hard time facing their own mortality. I, I recognize that, you know, we're here today, we're going tomorrow. So they don't like to discuss things that are disturbing things about these disasters and catastrophes. I get all of that. But we also have to recognize that, that as it stands today, that right now, we're in a period of time, you know, this is the Anthropocene. This is a, a period of time that we have done so much to the environment and our planet over the past 200 years, like right after the, uh, the beginning, in the midst of the Industrial Revolution up to now, that we're gonna start to suffer the consequences of our actions over the course of the next few decades into the next century, if we make it that far. So we're not in a period anymore where things are going to get better. And, and I don't want to go into my, I, you know, I know I kind of look a little bit like Thanos and the thing is, is to go in my, my Thanos mode. <laughs> that is right. Take a look at right? a picture of Aton. He does sort of look like Thanos. <laughs> right. So, so the thing is, though, um, we, we're at that point now. Um, it's not the end game yet, but like what you just said in terms of having food in your house, having materials and supplies, we have to start to do it now is, is if you can afford to do it one way, fine. If you can't, then there are other ways to do it. Like I was just telling someone how they could rinse out those, uh, such, you know, you do the food stuff. And you know those containers where you put the olive oil in, they're made out of uh, metal, they're square and things like that. Absolutely. And yes. You know what I'm talking about, those things. And, you know, there's a way that you can, because they're all food grade, because they have to have olive oil in it, you know. So you can take those things and you can use lemon water and vinegar and you can rinse them out. If you shake them and you rinse them out and you really clean them well, you can even use those for water containers and you can stack them. Now, they just throw those things away. They throw them away on the street. Um, you get a water hose and you get some lemon juice and you basically scrub them on the insides and you have a container <clears throat> that you can stack, or you can just use the regular water bottles that come with uh, the caps. You gotta have emergency water in your home. One way or another, you gotta do it. There are many, many different ways that you can store emergency water for long periods of time. It can be the bottles that you buy in the store. You can improvise a water container with those kinds of uh, containers, or you can do lots of other things. But if you don't have the money, then you've got to do it. So you've got to have emergency water. You've got to have emergency food. You've got to have emergency medicine. We're not at the point anymore where we can, number one, we cannot look towards the government. We can plainly well see, it is clearly evident at this point that anybody that is still looking to the government to protect them, it's, it's a, com a completely foolish, romantic notion that is almost, it's foolhardy at this point to think in that way. The only thing the government is, is, uh, is, is concerned with is protecting itself. You are on your own. Recognize that. And once you get to that point, you know, this is almost like a fight club moment. There's a scene in the fight club that I often recall and speak about where one of the characters, well, actually the Tyler Durden character pours lie on the person's wrist and, and tells, pours it on himself, really, and, and basically says the first thing you got to do is know that you're going to die, not feel, but know. And you have to know that it's not going to get any better. This is one of many diseases, as you said earlier, Christine, that this is a novel coronavirus. It's new. 
but recognize that what we have done to the environment, and going back to what I just said about with what we've done over the course of the past 200 years, the Arctic is melting, okay? So what does that mean to you? You know, what's that got to do with the network character? What's that got to do with the price of rice? Here's, here's the reality. We have the Arctic melting down, and we have thousands of viruses that we haven't been in contact with for eons that are being recirculated back into the environment once again. Uh, viruses like the Spanish flu, the big flu that in 1918, it killed 675,000 Americans, maybe 100 million people worldwide. Um, there's a place in Siberia that a number of people were buried with that Spanish flu back in 1918, and it was a shallow grave. Guess what? This permafrost that they were buried in was shallow, and a lot of them are going to be exposed to the environment again. And so will that virus. And so will other viruses that we're, we haven't seen for hundreds and thousands of years that we have absolutely no immunity to. Here's my thought is that we are entering a new age with the climate change, which is undeniable, that we are going to be exposed to more new, both pathogens and climactic stressors that are going to um, test our personal um, ideologies and fortitude, as well as our communities. Um, and again, I'm going to go back and say, we need to essentially build our community. I'm not talking that you just need to be personal best friends with your neighbors if you don't like them, but I'm saying you do need to find your people, build your tribe, because those are the people that will help sustain you. This goes back to what I was uh, brought up earlier about how to prepare yourself, especially when you don't have cash income, um, where you might be cash poor. This is an opportunity to work within your personal uh, group, in your family, to potentially barter skills, barter trade, and do things that can one help be beneficial to other members of your family, um, and then they can help do things for you. So it would be very easy to offer um, with person that you trust in your social isolation group, because it's okay, actually. If you close your group, you can actually visit and hang out together. Um, so you might offer to help them do a lot of house cleaning, and they can then give you the milk that you need. So be creative in your thinking about how to get your needs met. And that means, again, reliance on community and family and build that tribe up. That's so well said. If you don't do it, you're not going to have any choice. That's the other thing too, Christina, because like, you know, people that are resistant, oh, that's, this is just, you know, just a lot of uh, hot air and you know, this is alarmist and all that kind of talk. But the reality is you're not going to have a choice at this point. Um, this is this coronavirus. I, I, I was just telling some folks about there's another virus on deck. There's a bird flu in the same area of China that's on deck. That's way worse than this. And um, so this is just one of many. And we have to now start to conform to this new normal. And like what you said, doing it with your tribe, with your community to build resiliency within your little unit or maybe even a larger unit. It doesn't matter. But the first thing is, is recognizing the reality that you truly are on your own in this respect. We have got to do for self. We cannot rely on government to do anything other than to do what it does, to collect those taxes and every once in a while protect material property when things get bad. Okay. Right now, it's all about us. And that's basically it. That's the basic message. So I, I completely believe in, in, in that whole idea of building resiliency within groups. Um, and I just hope that people take heed of this and I hope that they actually apply it because that's always been the message of, uh, of a feral house in terms of getting this information out there to people who to empower themselves with the information as opposed to just sitting and being frozen into a state of immobility and to actually go and do something that's going to actually change your situation. Absolutely. Um, we firmly believe Feral House, and it started with Adam, um, and the building of, of that feral family is that we 100% believe that you have 100% control over the choices that you make.
make those choices. So I want to ask um, Eitan, as we come in uh, to the close of our hour-long conversation, and thanks for for hanging around, we hope that you've got some information that is useful to you in listening to us. You can send us an email at info at feralhouse.com. Eitan, what is your website for folks who are looking for more information? Um, The website is uh, readyforanything.org. That's the website. You can go to that website. In fact, we're going to be it, actually we're going to be flipping it soon, um, and and putting on the new face. It's been a long time since I've done that, and um, so you know stand by for that because what you'll see now is you'll see some old content. We're going to put up some new content relevant to this, and even in accordance with uh, the new book that'll be coming out, um, and some other things that are happening. So readyforanything.org. And if anybody wants to contact me directly, even though it's kind of like rough right now because I'm in a final phase of preparing the new book, but you can reach me at B serious, and that is the letter B, S-I-R-I-U-S, at readyforanything.org. So that's B serious at readyforanything.org. Or go on to Facebook and go to International Preparedness Network and like and join up with us. And, um, you know, we will, someone will get back to you if you have any questions. And uh, so that's basically it in terms of, you know, contacting us. And let's let's now deal with sanity as opposed to the insanity of what we've been seeing. There's really no there's no reason to panic. Um, There's no reason to uh, to go into this state of fear. Um, All we need is information and discipline, information and discipline. If we apply the information that we get and we have the discipline to carry it out. That's really all we need. There isn't any reason to panic. This is not the worst of the things to come. This is something that will get past and we'll even be better prepared to deal with the next crisis. Absolutely. Now, if you're a stoic like I am, this stuff is what we've prepared our lifetimes for. And uh, the stoics essentially sum it up as saying, it's going to get worse. Um, I want to to just read something really quick. Um, This is on the cover of Aton's newest book that'll be coming out in fall of 2020. Batman ain't real, but he is. I know who I'm calling when the shit goes down. And that's from W. Kamau Bell, who is... That's Kamau, yeah. Yeah, a fantastic writer, and he is a program on CNN. So I want to thank Aton because you are an expert for 30-plus years in how to prepare for um, disasters big and small in all types. And so I thank you for spending your time with us and for your expertise. Well, thank you for having me. And, you know, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, doing some big things with uh, Feral House. And, you know, like what you said, we got to use our powers for good, right? So we're going to do as much good as we can and to spread the information, to spread the word. And we hope that this this podcast motivates you to take clear and uh, aggressive action to protect yourself, your family, and to build resiliency, not only in your own immediate circle, but in your community. All right. That, wonderful words to leave off on today, Saturday, March 14th. We may be uh, doing another emergency podcast uh, with Aton in the future, depending on how things progress. So again, thank you for listening. Hey, fiends. Thanks for listening to the Feral House podcast. We do this about once a month, talking to Feral House and Process Media writers, as well as members of the extended Feral family. You're part of the family. Let us know if you have any questions or if you have an idea of someone we should talk to. You can send me a note at press at feralhouse.com. P-R-E-S-S at feralhouse.com.